Welcome to Calendar vs. the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I've been enlightened, Kyle. I'm ready. It's good to know. Yeah. And I'm the machine. I figured it all out. <laughs> glad you, I'm, I'm glad you did. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The year just so happens to be 2018. We're going through the five-year anniversary of a bunch of films. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And... I know we said at the end of last episode that we we're going to be talking about Roma this week, but we're doing a pivot. So because oh, of some shocking. guests that may or may not be on the Roma episode, we've switched it. And we're actually talking about the Academy Award winning film, <laughs> Green Book. I've offended all our listeners. Actually, you're going to tell me that I've offended some. I can't wait to see what the best picture of this year was. <laughs> of 2018. Yeah. This was the best movie released in the calendar year of 2018. Like, I look at the list of films that came out this year, right? And I just thought, none of them are as important as Green Book. Yeah, some guy called over here, a doctor. He's looking for a driver. You interested? I am not a medical doctor. I'm a musician. I'm about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South. What other experience do you have? Public relations. Do you foresee any issues in working for a black man? You and the Deep South? There's gonna be problems. Promise me you're gonna write me a letter. No problems. Tell me that don't smell good. I've never had fried chicken in my life. You people love the fried chicken. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right? I'm good. This is not like really a hot take anymore, but just to show my hand right at the very beginning, this would not even come onto my nomination list of 2018, let alone win the best film of the year, but we'll, we'll get to that. We just watched four films that take on mm -hmm. racism a lot better than this film. Yes, but we'll get to it. We'll, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get Sorry. to it. To be fair, Black Panther and uh, Black Klansman were nominated for best picture. Of course, we do have to give a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show, since you know, the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there, uh, which I believe is Honky Tonk Man. We're going to talk about okay. Honky Tonk Man Clint. here in March. Wait, is this the one you said? You, no, you watched Bronco something. I watched Bronco Billy, yeah. which uh, good. that is the hot take if you read most reviews. I think... Great movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> People should watch Bronco Billy. It is a great, great People movie. People don't like it, other than our Clint expert. Okay. Although, I've now come... I, this is because, of, of course, the algorithm finds you and, and just serves things up to you. But uh, two uh, Clint Eastwood superfans agree with me. <laughs> I've seen actually a couple different articles. You know what movie slept on? Bronco Billy. <laughs> and like five people have watched this movie. <laughs> and I am one of those five people. Can I just make a quick comment about algorithms? Did you read that article about AI? Like the Steven Spielberg movie AI? Uh, no. Haley. What happened to Haley Joel Osment? He did not age uh, as cutely, but... Um, he, he starred in the movie Tusk. Uh, directed by Kevin Smith. One of the latest Tusk. versions of GPT, I think it's called GPT 3.5, did one of those cognition tests and scored mm -hmm. as a nine-year-old. So this test is like, they give you a random uh, association test. So it's like they show you seven pictures and you got to figure out how they're related. And apparently even two years ago, it, it was like you know, unable to find context between uh, source material and now it can. Great. I mean, that's totally not going to end terribly. Um, although I read another article saying that we should not technically be calling 
chat GBT and, and AI. most of everything else. AI is actually machine learning, but, but that's a whole other kettle of fish that we do not need to get into we could. right now. I love how much relevance this has to the movie Green Book. One of the things that people tune into, Dave, not just our phenomenal movie opinions <laughs> each and every week here on the show, <laughs> but they want to know like this deep and rich fiction that we've been building over the last like almost four years. Yes. There is a, I'm sure a novel it's- will be written about the epic yarns that we have spun on this very show. It's going to come to a head soon. But uh, I have a delivery to make. So we actually have to record this episode while I'm driving. So uh, you know, just get, get into the car here. Oh, you're going to have some complex foley here. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Can I sit in the back? Yes, please. I was going to say, I don't really want you up here in the front seat with me. So also, there's no seatbelts back there. Well, so I was going to say, fun. Helen asked me why this fella's sitting in the back. And I was like, you don't remember old cars? It's a couch. You can take a nap. <laughs> yeah, Nobody cared about your safety. It was, uh, no. it was just a nice place to lay back. My parents telling me about the... Like they would just like sleep in the back yeah. of the station wagon. and <laughs> Those things were so big, even you had leg room. Honestly. Yeah, exactly. Those things are huge. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's back out here and we're on our way. Before we really jump into our conversation, there is some feedback. Yes, I heard. Um, and some updates that I want to give to you. So, corrections. Corrections. You love corrections here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Clement. What did we get wrong? What did I get wrong? Clement. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I love reading corrections when you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my favorite thing in the world is when someone calls you out and says, actually, Dave was incorrect. And it's like, well, I know that most of the wow. time. <laughs> but this is factually incorrect. Where's, where's this glib, glib attitude when you're incorrect, right? Yeah. I just never talk about those ones when they send them in. So <laughs> so we were talking about Black Panther, of course, okay. I don't remember. Uh, last week. I often don't remember uh, anything I say. That is also the hard thing is like, I probably did say that and I don't remember. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, yeah, we were talking about Black Panther. We were talking about our history with Marvel and that sort of thing. Okay. And we also talked about the thing that Marvel gets into, which is tailoring their films for China. Okay. You made the comment about, well, this is them uh, courting. That's why they do did Shang-Chi in the first place was courting the Chinese market. Oh, did it? Okay. Uh, Clement wrote in and let us know. Uh, Shang-Chi actually never released in China. It was banned there. You couldn't, they didn't show it. Oh, before they even showed it uh, at all? Yeah. So all of the money that Shang-Chi made was all to do from like North America and of course Europe and stuff like that. Oh, but is that its biggest market in Asia was, it was not released in. Interesting. Is that true? Okay. I'm sure it's Googleable. That's what I was told. I actually did not verify this, so maybe it isn't true, but that is what no, Clement said. I, I don't doubt that Clement is more intelligent than us, but I just feel like I remember a lot of news articles about opinions of his Chinese-ness, that he wasn't good-looking in an Asian standard. That was a weird time because that was, I'm putting this in quotes, when COVID was ending, <laughs> in quotes. So people were a little bit more resistant to go back to the movie theater. It's one of those things where well, it was in the top 10 money earners of the year, but it was still considered somewhat of a disappointment because it didn't make a billion dollars right. like all the other Marvel films had done. Uh, more on that in just a moment. Uh, the other thing that you asked, why do Star Wars shows look so much better than these Marvel mm, films okay, yeah, yeah, and yeah, Marvel shows? Yeah. Clement also let us know that predominantly... For whatever reason, do not know why this is the Marvel machine. It's because the Star Wars shows are filmed on location. The Marvel shows, uh, most of the time, there's some exceptions for certain scenes. Screen, yeah. Even when they look like they're outside, they're not. It's all filmed against a green screen and composited in later. Mm. Whereas the Star Wars shows, yes, they use sometimes that like 
cool new screen, which is a studio here in Calgary. I just found it's in out. Calgary. Oh, some of it is, I yeah, because they're filming so many other big productions here. So you have that big wall. They sneak some stars in, yeah, because you don't see yeah, them. That light Andrew wall. Garfielding around here. But if you look at like Andor, yeah, exactly. But if you look at like Andor or uh, even The Last of Us that was filmed here, most of that, like eighty percent of it, is filmed outside in a location. Uh-huh. And they might put a background or something. Uh, and then composite later and removing things. Okay. They'll remove background stuff. So again, if you have watched The Last of Us, you'll be seeing them walking downtown Calgary. And Canmore. Yeah. And in Canmore, it's like, well, that building actually isn't there. That's Because right. they composited in later. And I remember we were driving on McLeod and we thought the massive accident because they had an overturned car in these concrete mm-hmm. blocks. And, uh, you know, immediately you have to think after that's a movie set. But I didn't know at the time they were shooting Last of Us here. It was like when they first yeah. started. It was pretty shocking because uh, you wouldn't expect that in a sleepy town like Calgary. Calgary's getting more and more uh, big productions here. So we, we kind of talked about this, about how it's easier for special effects artists if they have like real shadows and real stuff mm. to work with rather than it's only just on a green screen where you have to construct it all from scratch essentially. So so we weren't wrong. We were wrong in the sense that I thought it was still a stage, but we weren't wrong mm-hmm. that Marvel sucks. And they really need to just spend that money a little more wisely. Give it to me. Daddy needs a facelift. Okay, so John also wrote in, and this is kind of in reference to our Creed 2 discussion okay. from a few weeks ago. But And by the way, you can send emails to Kyle and Dave vs. the machine at gmail.com. I tried to get a longer address and I just couldn't do it. So she said, we should put our last <laughs> names into it. That would have been easy. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, so, Kyle and Dave, VS, the machine at gmail.com. I think we both have middle names, too. I mean, you're just not trying. I have, I have two. Yeah. I have two middle names, You're Dave. just tr- not trying hard enough. My Korean name has two parts to it, so it's kind of mm. the same thing, right? Put my social insurance number in there. <laughs> I mean, I don't even remember mine, so it's perfect. Okay. So, John writes in part, not to be pedantic, but both Creed 1 and Creed 2 are sequels to Rocky Four. I like Creed 2 more than both of you, apparently, although I still agree that Creed 1 is much better. However, you both asserted that Creed 2 is a shoehorn sequel to Rocky 4 mm. when the whole setup to the Creed franchise is a death of Apollo Creed, which happened in Rocky 4. Oh, yeah, that's fair. So I just thought that okay. was an interesting point. Is like, that is true, technically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. I didn't think about that in the sense of how the narrative doesn't focus directly on it so much, but it, it really is an important part of that first film, isn't it? To our points, the first one handled that better than it becoming a Rocky movie rather than a Creed movie. But that's beside the point. Yeah. One last thing. This is more of a news story than it is any feedback or anything. We posited in our Black Panther episodes, like, is there going to be a time when we see, like, Marvel fallback, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slow down a bit. And then the algorithm's like, well, we told Kevin Feige. (laughs) Right. I took the bullet and I went to the movie theater this this week to watch uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Just feeding the machine. He didn't feed me anything. Now, I will say, to be fair, as the news reports come out, it is the best opening weekend for an Ant-Man film, uh, but still pretty light when it is compared to some of the previous films that have just come out, as well as when you look at Marvel at a, as a whole. But the reactions to this movie pretty negative i was actually pretty shocked by it because honestly even though i was not a huge fan of the movie i was like yeah it's kind of the same thing that has been coming out for the last few movies but it seems like there has been a bit of a arc that has finally happened here bridged it where people's like or like you know the the straw that breaks the camel's back where the reaction online 
and the Rotten Tomatoes score is like really bad mm. for for a Marvel film. So it seems like this is the one finally for people to be like, maybe this isn't what I want to go to the movie theater all the yeah, time for. Pay attention to that. So we'll yeah, we'll have to see. I live on Disney Plus now for Marvel for not this reason, but I am loath to spend fifteen dollars for a film that I will inevitably be somewhat disappointed by disappointed by i mean i think again we have to wait here there's two other big marvel films coming out which is guardians of the galaxy 3 and then the marvels which comes out later this year okay they'll both be bad we'll see if this is just a blip or if this is an actual trend that's happening okay i don't think you're allowed to i just googled that clements right never released in china i need to dig into that a little bit more because um where did all that stuff that chatter come out so many years ago I don't know. Maybe from the Chinese American community. My new-ish theory, and we'll talk about this more as we get in, hit into more of the Marvel films of from 2018. I think uh, there's always going to be a place for superhero films going forward. I don't think that that genre is going anyway, no. going away ever. That being said, I think there's going to come a time where it's like we cannot justify giving you 200, 250 million dollars to make these yeah. films. Uh, we're gonna have to scale this way back, which actually kind of excites me because then you get like the more interesting, like smaller films. But well, that's uh, that's probably a whole other thing. Gotta be. I mean, not just age, but that's gotta be another incentive to reboot all these characters with teenagers because you don't have to pay these kids as much as a Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, Jr., true. Right? So uh, more on that as we go forward. We of course are talking about the best movie of 2018. I can't wait. As I can't wait. Described. By the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. This is your Bible. That's your <laughs> That's your clergy. I mean, yeah. you keep saying that. I just enjoy watching the show. I don't think they get it right all the time. It's generally, they don't. I will say this, though. Just to keep bagging on big superhero tent poles. This past week, I rewatched both Titanic and Amadeus. Mm. Titanic, I actually went to the theaters to watch the 25th anniversary oh, presentation. Because it's 25, yeah. They're still good. It actually was yeah. it was third at the box office, which is like bonkers Hilarious. that a twenty five year old movie can make that much money still. Check. Yeah. After watching those two movies, like, oh, this is kind of what I've been missing is like big blockbuster filmmaking that's still artistic and is like something that you can talk about afterwards. Where are those movies? And it's like not really being made. I just watched, as Kyle knows, the original X Men film. Or if you watch Sam Raimi's yeah. Spider Man, they actually kind of work better than Marvel Marvel movies. As dumb as X Men is, particularly towards the end of that under, film, under two hours too. It's aren't like they? an hour forty five minutes. You have A list actors just kind of like holding down what is clearly mm-hmm. a shit plot, and uh, <laughs> it's actually still fun to watch. It's weird. We're spiraling. So let's talk about this. this we have to book. discuss some of our backgrounds with some of the people involved with this movie. So first and foremost, let's talk about director and co-writer Bobby Farrelly. What's your history with Bobby Farrelly? I was so shocked that this is a Farrelly brother yes, it is. film. Brother yeah. film. Um, Apparently they don't make films together anymore. There was a bit of a rift or something sure. that happened. Well, this is such a big tone. This is your Adam McKay and what's the other guy? Todd Phillips and... This is exactly those yeah. two. And we get to talk about an Adam McKay movie this year, too. At any <laughs> so, rate. Um, which I'm also not looking forward to. I grew up on Fairly Brothers humor, a humor that probably doesn't hold up as well as it did in the so mid-90s. So, what are we talking about here? We're talking Kingpin, There's Something About Mary, Dumb is and Dumber. Me, Myself, and Irene. Me, and Myself, yeah. Irene, yeah. Um, 
it's just like the Coen brothers were known for their sort of uh, deadpan, sl- uh, sarcastic comedy, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. These guys were known for gross out, basically teen comedy comedies. Sure. Adam McKay is associated with uh, Will Ferrell and uh, some mm-hmm. of his great idiocy, which is great. Some of it still holds up. So, I didn't know that uh, which Ferrell is, is it Peter and- Yeah, Bobby Ferrell and Peter yeah, Ferrell, I believe are the two Bobby names. Bobby Ferrell made this drama. So, I, haven't, I actually didn't even Google what they've been doing. I just was shocked when I saw- have you seen his follow-up film? I was going to try and watch it and I, I didn't this week. Um, the Greatest Beer Run Ever? No. I refuse to watch that. An Apple TV Plus exclusive? Yeah. Uh, for a couple of reasons. <laughs> it looked dumb, number one. Yeah. Sure I'm does. not a huge Zac Efron fan, even though people seem to like that he's you. trying to rebuild himself as this travel guru. Um and, uh, you know, as somebody who actively does not partake in alcohol culture, this idea of a story right. of some fucking jackass trying to deliver Pabst Blue Ribbon uh, in uh, Vietnam is not that appealing to me. How about the jackass films, though? Are you a fan? <laughs> no. No, I haven't even watched <laughs> oh one. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, it's so good, Dave. No. It's so funny. No. I'm kind of the same way, honestly. Like, I, I, I was the exact right age when Dumb and Dumber came out, and I was, like, all about... Jim Carrey, man. Jim Carrey, thank you. <laughs> Jesus. So it's all about the Jim Carrey thing. Um, I actually have never seen Kingpin. That's the one movie I have not watched that people say is super, super funny. It's the so Wo- I might. Woody Harrelson and. Yeah, bowling movie. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. John Turturro. Is that the one where he licks the bowling yes, ball? Yeah. Licks the ball. Yeah. I've seen the gifts. I kind of know most yeah, of what's yeah. going on in that movie. Randy Quaid. And I probably fell off. And I, of course, there's something about Mary was like such a huge cultural touch point yeah. in the 90s. Ooh, pretty much made Cameron Diaz. Cameron that in the mask, I would say. The one-two punch of that in the mask. When you watch the mask and you see her like not, you know, too fit. It's interesting. She looks like a different person, even though you know sure. it's her. Yeah. Uh, but I think, yeah, I definitely fell off of them probably in the early 2000s. I forget there was like a string of stuff that was like, this is bad there's the one called the heartbreak kid oh sorry ben, ben stiller, stiller. Is that yeah, fairly- which is a remake of the elaine may movie of the same oh. name which is very bad like really bad yeah uh and there's another one i'm just i'm blanking on that i also thought was like this is unwatchably mm, bad right, it broke so up. yeah so i kind of dropped off of wanting to go and see their comedies and i remember when this movie came out like that was like one of the big stories it's like one of the Farrelly brothers is coming he's a move into like dramatic filmmaking like that cannot be good and it's about what mm-hmm. no way is this going to be <laughs> handled with any type of like care well now the two stars that we have in this movie we have mahershala Ali and Vigo Mortensen. Mm. Anything that you have to say about those two gentlemen? Uh, I've always been a fan of Vigo, but uh, it's just because you got to see his penis in Eastern Promises. <laughs> I was going to say Eastern Promises. I mean, he's uh, Aragorn, Aragorn and Lord of the Rings, and even uh, what was he? He's just he's just a neat guy. He's not just sharp and good looking in like a cruel way. He's a pretty good yeah. actor. He's got quite a lot of range. He's done everything. I think he yeah he can be comedic. He can be romantic he can be cruel he can do all of it and now i'm gonna learn mm-hmm. he can be fat so uh, i mean great i don't know i have to push back like everyone says that he's fat in this movie i'm like i mean i'm yes he's not like super skinny but i still would never call him fat in this movie either. well just take a still from eastern promises and put up sure. a still of him here and he let's okay, say he's, he's fatter fat for than himself. he is in yeah. eastern promises this is what vigo morrison as an obese man looks like and he's still okay pretty normal looking <laughs> Yes. 
I'll say this. I love Eastern Promises. I think it's a great, great movie. Perfect. It might even be my favorite Cronenberg. Mm. I might be so bold as to say that Eastern Promises is my favorite Cronenberg film. Okay. He, he swings from like being super terrifying in that movie mm. to such a degree. I'm like, I don't want to hang around with this guy. He's so terrifying. And then it's so like that drawn out fight in the in the bathhouse is like so um, visceral <laughs> that entire scene. Anyways, it's a movie. really good movie. I like that movie quite a bit. How about Mahershala Ali? Well, he, he kind of obviously, like so many black actors, got a late break. I mean, finding out Chadwick Boseman was actually almost 50 when he died, like 40 mm. something. It's shocking. I'm trying to think of what I saw. I mean, can you name some of his early work? He's going to be the new Blade. He was in Moonlight, which I know you I haven't seen. seen. Moonlight, that's right. Oh, he was, he was in a bunch of episodes of House of Cards. Ah, that's probably right. where a lot of people know yeah. him. Was also in the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, really? Place I behind, fell in that movie. Place Beyond the Pines. Did not. Uh, is that the Ryan Gosling one? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I watched that movie. Uh, was uh, a voice in Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. Oh yes, he's Uncle. Uncle. He's what's the uncle. His face? Yeah, that's a great uh, movie. Aaron, I think. I hope we get to watch that this year because. That well, it did come out in 2018. That should have won the best picture of the year, but let's keep going. Definitely probably because it was a House of Cards, so he's in like most of those beginning episodes. I, I was probably knew him from there into some of those Hunger Games sequels. And then the last couple of years, like from 2016 to 2018, he seemed to be getting a bunch of stuff. He holds kind of a, this distinction. He does have two Academy Awards. Oh, interesting. For two nominations. So he's 100% for nominations currently. Oh, Moonlight. Okay. Yeah, he went for Moonlight and won this. And this was, I don't know, again, when you are a nerd about the Academy like I am, I will say that this win in particular, I guess it wasn't an entire shock, was still somewhat surprising because they normally don't reward the same actor twice in that short of a span. Mm -hmm. It's actually very, very rare. Uh, and there's something they seemingly have, are doing more because Francis McDormand also won two Academy Awards in the span of like two or three years mm -hmm. here in the last uh, little bit. So it's something that they're more eager to do sort of thing. Yeah, so this will say Marshall Ali, good actor, yeah. it turns out. Turns out. Well, I'm actually a big fan of. I wonder how Blade's going to work. That keeps getting delayed, so I'm all, almost convinced that that's not going to happen, too but much, we'll see. Too much Marvel. How about this movie? What, uh, do you have any relationship to this no, movie? No, i actually never seen it. I know about the controversy around it, but I, uh, as we're learning, I mean, yeah, my petering out of the movie theater definitely has a correlation with me having a son. I don't think I've watched any of these in the theater, to be honest with you. I also did not see this in the theater. I have seen this movie before. It was a rental at home. Uh, Oscar Prep. I actually checked it out. It was like February 20th or something like that of 2018 mm. is when I watched yeah, this. Oscar so it's Prep. pretty close to that anniversary of watching it again. I watched this, of course, before the controversy mm -hmm. began. So uh, I did not write anything, I don't think, on my letterbox. I just gave it a rating back then. What I rated it back then, five years ago, was a three out of five. I was like it's not really a movie made for me but it's like it is well made to an extent like it looks good uh the acting is good but it's such a boilerplate tropey movie that it's like it just is not something that screams like oh i need to rewatch this movie ever again yes. in my entire life yep. that's what that's how i felt back then now post-controversy there's been a lot of stuff that's happened in the world mm. <laughs> i will just say geopolitically and I think one of the things that I wouldn't have really keyed in on, and one of the parts I kind of want to explore in our conversation about this, is that this is, once again, a movie 
really about a black man, but told through the eyes of a white man. Oh. And I think that once it's pointed out to you that that happens all the time, it does become pretty egregious just from that. Mm. You've become aware of the colonial lens. I actually don't think, just to get myself canceled completely here, I don't actually think that that necessarily makes it a bad movie if, if no, that is what's no. going on, if it's told through the lens of a white character. No. From my point of view, though, would it be more interesting if it was told from this other character's point of view? And in this case, I think it would be. I, but that's... I mean, yeah, since we're here, I'll just say before we, I guess we get into it, the problem isn't so much that it's a white or black lens. The problem, as I learned later, is that, uh, what's this guy's name? Tony Lip? It's his son that wrote this fucking movie. His son that wrote so, it, yes. So we, it's not so much uh, a white man's view, it's about mythologizing and loving your dad. That's the problem with this film. I think that is also an issue here where you can't, from all things that I've read about the man, was probably way more racist than what he's portrayed yeah. to be in this movie. Yeah. So <laughs> he's Italian in the sixties, and the, the, you know the irony, of course, is that people were, and it's shown briefly, uh, quite racist against Italians and Irish, and sure. anybody who wasn't Aryan, fucking America. Personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with having daddy issues. Anyways, I look forward to jumping into that with you. But before we do, let's uh, take a little bit of a break. Dave, uh, pull out the laptop here. We'll go and thank some sponsors, and then when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about Green Book. Oh, well, when you look at that, Dave is falling fast asleep here as I've been driving around. He's like a newborn baby there in the back. So I guess I'm going to have to do these ad reads by myself, which is perfectly safe as I drive this gigantic Oldsmobile down the center of the road. I'll start off with this. Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week we're brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. To find out more, you can go to ecfoundation.org. This episode is also brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you switch providers, nothing changes about the delivery of these utilities to your home or business. And if you have an existing contract, you're going to want to find out the terms before leaving. If you don't, then it's even easier to sign up for Park Power. You, as the consumer, have the choice of who you pay your bills to. Why not choose your friendly local utilities provider? You can learn more at parkpower.ca. Hey, get off the road! Okay, Dave, well, we have sat down. I really should have been watching The Road, to be honest with you. <laughs> I read that book, and I <laughs> almost dropped that book so many... You've read the book, I'm sure. The Road? Oh, The Road, yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, I thought that's what you're talking about, because that's Vigo, too, but... Uh, that is also... Oh, that's, that's, that's true. Know? Both the book and the movie completely destroyed me. The I cannot imagine what that would be uh, like as a parent uh, to watch The Road. Uh, well, I read that book years ago. I don't think I could read it now, but I refused. My, I have, I had the DVD and never unwrapped it. I think someone gave it to me and I mm -hmm. was like, after reading the book, I do not, 
of need a visualization of this no. fucking content. <laughs> I'm sure it's good, I know, but I can't handle it. It's <laughs> so bleak. It is so bleak. That is one of the few movies I remember going and watching it with a friend, and as the credits were rolling, in the theater, literally the entire audience just sat there. Yeah. And it's not because they we, they didn't like it. It's just like we have to process yeah. what we just saw. Yeah. Like, we have to, like how do you you can't just go out into the sunlight after this. You have to kind of sit with it for a bit. You know, my sister referred me to this book. She always gets me some challenging books, and I think she actually got me the DVD, or I picked it up on sale. You know, somewhere thinking one day I would open it, and it just it never happened. Dave, we have to create a scenario here just to maybe catch people up in case they have not seen it in the movie. Again, the best movie of 2018. I presume a lot of people have not, frankly. Well, based on the box office, which was a bit of a shock to me, I have to tell you, uh, apparently a lot of people did watch this no. movie. Let's say that you've been stopped at a red light, right? Yeah. You're stopped at a red light, and this other car just rolls right up to you, and they're like motioning for you to roll down your window. They had automatic windows in the 60s. Isn't that weird? I didn't. I wasn't yeah. expecting that. Okay, keep going. You had the high-end cars. If you were part of the mob, you had the, the limo. automatic... Mm -hmm. But uh, they say, roll down your window, which you do. And they're like, hey. I would just flip them the bird, which I think is. <laughs> and speed uh, off. Hey, man, like I just picked up this DVD copy of Green Book. But like, what's it about? How would you concisely tell him what the plot is of Green Book? A racist. Mm, is that too heavy? A racist Italian tough guy is hired by an intellectual. Do we even say gay? Or is that supposed to be a twist? An intellectual black musician to take a trip down into the deep south on a music tour in which they mm -hmm. solve racial discrimination uh, by becoming <laughs> the best one buddies. Tour, Dave? Yeah. A lot of high-fiving and hugging. One other thing, I, I should have asked you this at the very beginning. The green book mm -hmm. that is referenced in, in this film, he's given it like places and towns to go if you are to an African-American traveling yeah. at that time. Were you aware of that? book before that movie, was an actual thing no i i only learned about it before watching this because i googled green book to try to figure out what this movie is supposed to be structured and then i mm. got a hit on the green book and i was like oh that makes more sense because otherwise the mm. name of this movie does not make sense what's what's fascinating to me is that i actually did know about the green book only because as a podcast listener there was a story that came on this american life about it so about a year before this movie got released like in my memory at least so i actually had a base knowledge of like what the green book was and how it operated and what it was used for and just and then this movie pops up I was like oh they made a movie out of mm. that concept real book used for black travelers who had to go through the south it's like you can stop here do not stop in this town don't be in like don't be here after nightfall in this these places. You can stay at this hotel. Like it actually laid out exactly where you could actually go. Mm. Because otherwise, for some families, if they're going to go and like visit and people in their family, it was lock the doors, drive, and do not stop. Well, uh, America is the land of the free and the home mm. of the brave. So I'm very curious then, Dave, what are your thoughts on this movie now that you've watched it? Well, I think when you were describing your feelings the first time you watched it, I think I'm right on par there. I don't think that this is a poorly constructed movie, right? I think it's shot reasonably well. It's a little overlong. So I think they try their best in an intention to kind of like piece together a narrative that is showing how gross racism is in that country and how endemic it is, particularly along state lines. I mean, I, I would have appreciated it more in a modern context to show that it's not about the South. <laughs> it's, it's quite pervasive in all of culture. I mean, we do see that with um, him throwing away the glasses 
because the two black laborers, what do you even call it, uh, touched them. Learning that this was written by Tony's son would explain to me why, for example, at the beginning, they spent way too much time with Tony just mm -hmm. trying to set up his character. I think we could have cut that down by half. I mean, it's not hard to establish a guy's racist, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I, again, this is going to go back to, in my opinion, it's just focusing on the wrong character. I actually do think this is a worthy story to be put into a film. Sure. I think that there's some engaging stuff here, and I think they bring up some really interesting points along the way yeah. with two actors who I think are able to elevate this material up from its kind of saccharine, uh, I don't know, reality that it's mm -hmm. in. It, it really does feel like... I'll say it. I guess Hollywood liberals being like, you know, racism is bad. We should make a movie that says that racism is bad. Yeah, and that's about as deep as they ever really get into, into this story. It's a checklist ticking box type of film. Whereas like all the stuff that I think is like super fascinating is touched on and then completely forgotten and then and moved on. But yes, his homosexuality, I think, does play a large part into his isolation. I think that him wanting to go into the South to kind of like prove a point is an interesting exploration. They, yeah, but they don't explain. Autonomy. But they don't really yeah. get into that. And that's that's the failure of this film. I, especially having, having watched If Beale Street Could Talk and Black Klansman, I feel yes. like, you know, whether we agreed on how the messages or whether they elicited the, a good message or not. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, we were out of our depth there, but we had our opinions. This thing introduces those powerful themes without working them at all. We don't know why he challenged the tour that he set up into the South. That actual musician clearly had an agenda to do that because he put his own life in peril. But this movie has no idea because it wasn't, they didn't even consult his family uh, to build this yes. film, which is a fucking yeah, joke. Yeah, I was going to get into that. And then his uh, homosexuality is kind of like implied in the most uh, like stereotypical way. And then when it is revealed, it's like, okay, well, we solved it by uh, bribing two cops. Let's move on with the tour. And you're like, what? <laughs> what is this movie about? Like, what is it about? Right. Right? It's well, strange. And then and then you get it wrapped up in that ending where it's like, you know, Mahershala Ali just shows up at the door and like, Hugging everyone's like, him. yeah, <laughs> like we love him now. And like the, the worst part is like, and I love her. Linda Cardellini yeah. is so underutilized as an actress in Hollywood. Yeah. It's a crime. You see like Tony Lip, Viggo Mortensen be like, yeah. And he like hugs him. And she's like, yep. And she like nods the camera yeah. almost like. Well, I it's, knew it. It's Tony, right, folks? I'm like, is this a sitcom that no. I just walked into? What is happening? Uh, quickly, I mean, Freaks and Geeks is a great show. Oh, so good. She's also really good in that one with, um, is it Dead to Me? The one with uh, Christina Applegate. Oh. She's in this show with Christina oh. Applegate on Netflix. No, I never watched that. Super good, too. There's too much stuff on Netflix. I wish both of you were dead in front of me. Anyway, so I just all to say, formally, I think this movie is pretty unassailable. And again, looks great. Acted well. Yeah. I would even say I like the score for the most part in, yeah, in this movie. It touches uh, all there's the... even some really cool editing tricks that they that they do in this movie that I think are like really well done. It's like the content though just keeps butting up and like, oh, like you're you can go deeper. Like go deeper with this idea. Yeah. Uh and it's and it's hard because I think that honestly, I think everyone has their heart in the right place. Yes. When we go into the backstory, you'll hear like Bobby Farrelly was very specific. Like, I do need an outside voice, so they hire Octavia Spencer to come on as a producer. Mm -hmm. They ask Mahershal Ali, it's like do you think this, this feels fair, real? Yeah. And he he offered his points. So it's, I, I think they were trying to do the right thing. Yeah. It just never comes together for me to be something that is like more than. It's just very surface level, this entire film. Yeah, perhaps we're expecting too much from movies these days for mm -hmm. lasting social consciousness. So like, like if we watch a Farrelly Brothers movie from the 90s, we're going to have difficulty sure. digesting it now because there's going to be a lot of offhand jokes that don't land. If we look at this film 
if this had come out 10 years earlier, I could totally see why people would consider this an Oscar nominated worthy yeah. film. But in 2018, again, we're going up against uh, an art film based off a James Baldwin novel and a Spike Lee, you know, fight the power type of uh, yeah, fuck it, you it, film. It, it, it's like, come on. I think the culture, it, it's interesting that the culture wars had, have moved to such a degree that, uh, yeah, there's, there's a whole portion of the audience that this still resonates for yeah. and a whole other audience that's like, there's actually way better material that's tackling this material here now. It is interesting, talking about Spike Lee, on the Oscar red carpet is basically asked, like, what did you think of Green Book? And he's like, not my cup of tea. Yeah. Like, he does not like this movie. He was did not How could he? pretend to like it. But it's also, too, because he loses his best picture. His best chance at best picture was to do the right thing, which is nominated and loses to Driving Miss Daisy, yeah. which is a very similar story as this movie is, too. I, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I, we don't know Spike Lee and whether he is so personally offended as though he were something against himself mm. as a character, but I would definitely consider from a academic level that he's not going to be interested in a whitewashing film. And it might have been more upsetting because it felt like, to us anyways, that Black Klansman was his concession film, that he tried as hard as yes. he could to do yeah. this thing, which is to make it more palatable to a wider audience. And then this thing comes out and it's like written for white people. This is like pillowy white guilt, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I do know that I'm kind of racist, but I'm more like Vigo. Like I, I figured it out now and, you know, I've got my black friend and everything's going to be cool, man, because I hugged him and, you know, I'm not racist anymore. That's what this film is. And it's, yes. it's kind of weak in that regard. Perhaps we're being unfair from a filmmaking perspective but these are this is problematic material to handle in 2018 as two white creators i mean <laughs> there's a lot of anger in the sure. streets because people are finally trying to process how bad it is i mean it was worse uh, when we weren't allowed to talk about it for sure uh, we see mm -hmm. that in spike lee's handling of the the anecdote of the torturing of the boy but uh fuck it's not that much better you know, to Farrelly and uh, Tony Lipson's credit, they're pretty unflinching with the South. But I've also kind of gotten tired of this rhetoric that it's only in Kentucky or Alabama or Georgia that you'll get lynched. I mean, cops are fucking killing people everywhere. Yeah, I just think that that might disingenuous a little bit. This is somewhat rewriting the movie a bit, but it's like, I guess I don't know enough about American history to make this huge statement. But it would have been interesting to have still like that blacks only club or whites only club in new york where they leave from yeah. <laughs> like that's where you start from and then go through the south which might be more upfront about their racism but it's like it's still here like if this is ever present in the society it's not like yes new york might be better but it's not like this paradise that nothing bad ever happens i think they are kind of aware that and this is why they should have hurried up in the first part of introducing Tony, because they, you know, they do show that at the very least, the traditional Italian family uh, was still anti-black, as most people were at this time. Uh, it's not less systematic and more cultural, I suppose you could argue. I don't know, but I think the that part loses steam as they do the first half of their tour in northern states, and they don't encounter any problems until they hit that hit that midsection. I think there's a lost opportunity to just sneak in pieces so that perhaps if you want to say there's a sliding scale and as we encroach a certain area, which is at least the stereotype of the United States, that it becomes very overt. But you know, like even when did the piano scene happen? That's near the end. 
Yeah, that's already... That's the last night of their tour. No, 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 the piano with the garbage in it, that's like... Oh, yeah, you're right. That's like halfway through. So, yeah. it's in somewhere in Kentucky or a little bit Yeah, somewhere on. in the middle. But, it, you know, I think... I don't remember the tour dates. So you should look it up. Were they in Illinois first? And Again, to ruin my backstory here, this is a very quick compression of their actual tour. Like, they even say in the movie, it's a two-month tour. Yeah. It was actually much longer. The actual tour life. is actually much longer in real life. They just kind of compress everything into two months. And then don't even show everything that actually did happen, apparently, on this trip. Yeah, it's too bad. You know, I'm glad Vigo's character, Tony Lip, got a lot of context into his own bigotry. I, I do like how Vigo portrays him, particularly in the sort of like, almost li- live authentically to yourself. So, if I'm going to be a pig mm-hmm. and I'm going to be a racist, I'm just going to be open about it and then... In that openness, allegedly, I can also be open to criticism, which is actually not fundamentally true, you know, often for human beings. Right. But um, so there is a fun in it. I think this is the key of casting the two people they did because on a superficial level, I kind of enjoy the journey. They yeah, go on. they're like, great. They have good chemistry. Yes, them interplaying with each other. It's good chemistry. It's fun. There's even some funny scenes that Absolutely. happen. Absolutely, the fried chicken thing is hilarious. Yeah. Right. I was going to say the fried chicken scene, I think, actually works really, really well. Marsha Ali actually talks about this is that he himself does not like eating chicken in front of other people for this very reason, because it's it, it shows Stereotype. people like, oh, I knew this is what you would love. Yeah, right? yeah. And I'm sure other people, other people of color and do this a lot in white culture, if they're surrounded by a lot of white people, they don't do something because like I don't want to be that minority. I was just in Edmonton and I was telling Kyle, we ended up uh, by default going to a tebanyaki restaurant. And as I walked by this uh, party table of these white kids, one kid just abruptly turned to me and asked me how to use chopsticks. <laughs> Great. So, you know what I did? I, I tried to teach him. But there's, yeah. you know, that's still strong inherent racism. It, racism is such a strong word, but, uh, you know, stereotyping that a random yeah. Asian dude that walks by you uh, will know how to use chopsticks. Now, fundamentally, most of us do, but <laughs> there's a lot of Asian cultures that don't use chopsticks, surprisingly. Sure. And a lot of Asian people in chopstick cultures don't know how to use them correctly because uh, they might use them as a spoon or whatever. So, that stuff's real and you got to pick and choose your battles but yeah that scene worked that really like well when i was i was downtown calgary here and I walked past uh, another group of of young men and they turned to me and they're like hey you have money because you're white <laughs> and i felt really prejudiced against it that one. <laughs> probably proud of anything uh, yeah. yeah i love the letter writing sequences like there's a lot of fun pieces in this but if you're gonna introduce things like i don't talk to my brother anymore I've been hiding that I'm gay, that I was once married, but something happened. You got to carry some of it through because it just leaves you hanging. This hurts, I think, a lot of times. This is going to be a weird comparison. But uh, M. Night Shyamalan, a person that we've talked about on this show before, and whose middle period is very much fraught with movies that are either, I think, mediocre or very, very bad. But he got to a point where the story was only hinging on the reveal or the twist. And it feels cheap after a while because it's like, okay, but so what? Does that add anything into this story? Mm. In the sixth sense, I would argue it does. It actually adds thematic resonance to that story. That's why it's considered his masterwork. I think. Right, yeah. exactly. What's similar about this is like, okay, you're you're feeding that that information. There is like that reveal pretty starkly about him in that bathhouse with another gay man. But for what? Like we don't actually get any resolution to that. Yeah. There's there's no deeper exploration into his character with that. We're just be like, oh, that's why he's not married anymore. 
well, I guess we'll dust our hands and walk away. I mean, there's a, that's the only reason it's in there. There's a great opportunity. We talked a little bit, at least we forgot to talk about this in our video version, but the great scene in uh, Black Clansman about passing. I mean, how mm. it just needed even one quick footnote that he could have been, he could have just shown that one of the biggest isolations isn't that he's a musician or intellectual or doesn't partake, uh, partake in all of the stereotypical actions, but he's also gay. And so, People around him are not going to appreciate his lifestyle choice, if you want to call it that, right? Which is which again, I think, adds into that uh, feeling of, of loneliness and yes. being sequestered it away, right? There. Which I think should be leaned into a little bit more. I, I, I like his overcompensation. Like yeah. the first time that Tony Lip goes to meet him, he's literally sitting on a throne right. yeah. above Tony Lip. Like he's trying to make himself like I am more important than you yeah. are. Yeah. So again, there's elements to this story. And why I said at the beginning, it's like, it's not that I don't think this story should be told. I just feel like the way it's constructed goes against it. It, it, it actively detracts from the story. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because Bobby Farrelly and the son developed it. So you can't take it out of their hands. But if they had written this script and it had been passed on to a different director and they had done a quick rewrite to add these pieces in, then it wouldn't have been hard. Like, <laughs> It's not that hard. Mm -hmm. They were so close. I think that's the most frustrating part. Okay. I never let my eyes wander off this film. I never felt like I needed to turn it off. If I'd been in a theater and I walked out, I wouldn't have been angry. It's just disappointing, I think. I think I should get a throne to sit on. I, I will say this for it. <laughs> this is not one of those films where I'm actively, I don't Against. know, hating the experience. Like, if for some reason I was ever at you know, someone's house or something like that. And like, we're going to watch Green Book. I'd be like, all right. <laughs> it is watchable. Like there's, again, some some cute scenes and some great performances and stuff, but it's not going to be ever in my list of like, oh gosh, like this is one of the great works where I have to rewatch this again. And especially as, I mean, we're very early in our 2018 season here, but we've seen other works I think are far above yeah. this film, even what it's trying to communicate. And how they do, and even visual language if we want to talk about um, construction of a film. Helen, after we watched this, we had a brief discussion about why you and I were interested in talking about this so much and how it's considered fairly controversial this year for this to have won. Mm -hmm. uh, and she knows my dislike for Oscar culture. And she posited that we should just watch all Oscar winning films. <laughs> and actually ground ourselves into how often it's controversial. And I think there's some merit to mm. that because, you know, uh, there are more than one. Like, I don't remember anything about Driving Miss Daisy, but I remember that was also, even in that era, people were like, I don't I don't know if this was right. And Moonlight, I think, was another one. And uh, there's mm -hmm. been a, quite a few where people are just like, I don't know, I'm just trying to figure this out, so... Yeah, I think it's it, it's weird as the Academy Awards become less relevant, they seem to spark like bigger controversy. And I don't know, maybe that's them trying to, in a way, become relevant so that people talk about them. That's, I think, putting a little bit too much more yeah, um, intentionality behind their choices than I think is warranted. But I wonder, you know, I think awards in general are stupid, but I think awards are viewed with the impact as though they cause culture, but they're more symptomatic, I think, of what culture actually is because they will be influenced by what the ballot scores believe 
either for themselves or it is going to be reviewed correctly. I think I would argue in America, it would be more influenced by how one appears to their peers rather than how one thinks for, uh, mm -hmm. thinks for themselves. We see this in other cultures, like in world soccer with the FIFA awarding World Cups to certain countries. There's a strong bribery element for sure. But if you look at some of the ballot results, there's so much politicking about how one is going to be viewed, not just by their compatriots or peers, but by their countrymen, etc. So perhaps the controversy is that we're learning yeah. that there's a greater divide in our culture than we wanted to admit. And it's just turning to a mess. We also have to remember that the academy is much is, is made up of people in the industry. Yeah. So there's a lot of glad handing that goes so back and some forth. Blinders, yeah. But but also, I think what the Oscars is a fascinating time capsule of is like the industry and a snapshot of that specific time. Because it's easy for us to go look back and like that one best picture, but to use the driving Miss Daisy example, like I kind of get it. We're at the end of the eighties. AIDS is still very rampant. Reagan is, has just finished his second term. There's an awful like scandal that's going on about like funding terrorists and stuff like that. So I get that maybe a movie that is, that is very critical of like white culture from, told through a black lens that almost like supports like using violence to solve problems might not be what the Academy wanted to award. They wanted to award something that was feel good that they went to the movies. I could take my grandma to, mm -hmm. and we could all have a good time. Mm -hmm. Like I kind of get it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas now we look back and like, well, maybe that wasn't the best choice of the best movie, but which is correct. But also at the time probably felt like mm, that might be not, the right message we want to send. This is perhaps something like when we talked about Stalker, maybe we should have posited this simple question, which is probably in a film school of questions, you know, should movies be escapist or they should, should they be philosophical and how often can they intersect? You know, it's obviously on the day because you and I will have days where we can watch. Uh, I just watched Talladega Nights and Step Brothers, And I think I needed to watch those movies on those nights because I was feeling pretty shitty in general. But then, you know, when you watch If Bill Street Could Talk or Black Klansman this year anyways, or the previous years, we watched some fairly challenging uh, movies. They have such uh, impactful value, even if, you know, maybe there are some rough edges, etc. Stalker, same thing. We didn't give it a great score, but if we ever return to it, maybe we keep gleaning pieces out of it. It has a lot of depth that way. So it's weird. I'm always stuck in the middle because I think that like supreme cinephiles would say that my taste is probably too populist. Mm. And yet, most of my friends who are like not super into movies would probably say that I'm super pretentious right. in what I like to watch. Yeah. So, like, I'm kind of in the middle here. Like, I'm, I, I kind of like that in between we want type both. of film, yeah. which is like it is still entertaining, but is challenging me at the same time. Because yes, I don't want to go and see a stalker every night. I'd be like, okay, but like, can we get a little bit of fun yeah. maybe thrown into this? But I also don't want to turn my brain off every single time I go and watch a movie either. Like, there, I feel there has to be a balance. I, I think there can be fun in stupidity and there can be fun in intellectual discourse and i think perhaps being so polarizing is a problem like oh well if i'm going to be smart i need to be smart in everything i do i think this may be why i get a little irritated by modern critical culture where there's a lot of like almost masturbatory writing you know sure. you know that's a pretty wide brush and you know i probably ought not to accuse all critics of being so high-minded i suppose but 
you know, you brought up Jackass. Like, there's a room for that. Yeah. There's a room for MCU, there room for that. right? There ought to be. Exactly. Yeah. I need to know where all these people are masturbating. We saw this in, in 71 when we oh, did our man. season in 71. That was super challenging. But All the hate. All the hate we get is for 1971. <laughs> it is true. That is true. Our biggest um, comments that we get on YouTube are all from 1971. We just got called Nazis on YouTube, so. <laughs> that is true. That is a true statement. I, I mean, even that's something that we said at the time. I was, of course, more positive about most of the films in total. But even I, at a certain point, is like, do we need to see, like, another rape in one of these movies? Like, it seems to be used a lot. Boy, is that not something that I want to watch every single time I go to the movie theater. It's a, it's a tough problem pertaining uh, that directly pertains to this film, which is, you know, we want, on one hand, to see this more visceral and as cruel as real life can handle. But we also don't because it becomes quickly so unpalatable. Because it's, it can be so dreary. It can be the road. You know, if you if you inspect any form of bigotry, not just against black Americans, but any any form in the world, his, you know, all the history of the world, it's fucking depressing, right? And watching a visual representation of that is not actually going to be that intellectually wholesome and frankly can actually incite hate on both sides. So where that middle ground is, I mean, it's a tough one, man. Like we, yeah, we've already watched so many this year. I, I don't know. It's hard because I don't even, um, to be truthful, I don't even know what I'm asking for because like, I, I, I'm not opposed to the tone. Like if they want to keep this fairly like light and basically like a buddy mm. road movie, that's fine. I just think that there's these things that could be maybe like explored a little bit more, sense. other stuff that could be trimmed out. Yeah. Like there just seems to be, I don't know, whether it was another one more rewrite of the script or just another huge attention to detail. Like how are we putting this story together? Uh, I don't think you would lose much of the audience just by like mm. <laughs> focusing or like tightening up some of the aspects of this. But then maybe it loses best picture at that point. Who knows? That's the thing. You can tell that these two, you know, white men wrote it because they inherently became more interested in the white character. And uh, it, it sounds so negative. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, we should move on. But I just okay didn't hate it. Didn't love it. Yeah. Didn't hate it. So why are you being so uh, apologies for this versus uh, Black Klansmen? No, I'm, I think that they are the same, but in inverse. And I think that um, Spike Lee's film, I think, is uh, better constructed and has a great raw edge. But I think it dulled itself trying to cater a little bit to a wider audience. Um, hmm. And I think that one uh, introduced so many hard-edged pieces that also didn't go to their let's say, logical, historic conclusion. I mean, if you have a Ku Klux Klan plot through line, it can get very dark very quickly, much darker than this film, that film went to. And this one uh, went the other way. It started in a pillow, super soft, tried to dip its foot into the reality of bigotry in America, and then came back and had a white cop help them change a tire, and they went home and had a fucking group hug in an apartment right. in New York, right? It's like... So, you want to see the freeze frame with the credits starting to roll. It's just like, weird. Yeah, it feel it's like, it's like they both have, yeah, problems. It's just a Anyways. mess. Okay, let's do some backstory and then uh, we'll finish off our thoughts on this movie. So, this movie opens up on November 16th of 2018. Currently, it is rated 3.7 on Letterboxd, has an 8.2 on IMDb, 
as a 69 on Metacritic, and then over on Rotten Tomatoes, from 364 critics, it has a 77%, and from 10,000 plus users, it has a 91%. Oh, wow. So you can see That's here really that high. the critical and like audience divide is super there. That's really high, 91%. Yes. Holy Available shit. Available on DVD and Blu-ray, and you can rent it on iTunes and Google Play. Its budget was 91%? <laughs> from, from fans, yes. From users of it, yes. That means that 91% of people give it at least a 3 out of 5. We need to start doing data collection on of meta, like a meta-metacritic analysis and seeing if mm-hmm. there's a trend for... Uh, white users or something i think what is obvious here is that general audiences loved this movie mm. what derisively is called like the flyover states in america right the people that aren't on the coasts they loved this movie <laughs> because it's palatable i think and part of that is, is is part of that because its budget is 23 million dollars it would go on to make 321 what? million dollars holy shit yes. uh that is worldwide but the majority of that came from like north america that's a lot of money a lot of money <laughs> it made so much money wow. uh if you remember again black klansman on the other hand made like 93 so like it is very clear what movie people wanted mm-hmm. to actually go and see its plot description from imdb is that. a working class italian american bouncer becomes the driver for an african-american classical pianist on a tour of venues through the 1960s american south <laughs> Give me a ticket, Dave. Give me two. <laughs> okay, nothing, so, yeah. uh, now it's time to play everyone's favorite game. Guess, Guess that, that tag. tag. This is, of course, the game that we play each and every week where Dave has to guess what the tagline to the movie poster was. You know when you go to a movie, uh, you see that row of posters when you first enter into the lobby, there to entice you to whet your appetite to go and watch an impending movie. Perhaps you're going out here this very week to go and see Creed 3 as it's opening here this week. Yeah, you're going to ring that bell, you're going to watch that movie. So Dave, you're going to have three options. One of these is the real tagline to Green Book. The other two are completely made up by me. So, was the tagline a real story about an improbable friendship? Was it inspired by a true friendship? Or is it they drive each other crazy? (laughs) (laughs) Something dumb and dumber. Maybe uh, one. A real story of an improbable friendship? Incorrect. It's the second one. Mm. Inspired by a true friendship. It should have been racism? What's the matter you? What's... (laughs) (laughs) Racism? Forget, Forget about it. We push on Italian stereotypes so much, so bad. Racism, that's a spicy amitabala. <laughs> <laughs> this, of course, stars Vigo Mortensen as Tony Lip, Mahershala Ali as Dr. Donald Shirley, and Melinda Cardellini as Dolores. I did read about uh, a little bit about like Quincy Jackson. Uh, Quincy Jones really liked Jones, uh, yeah. this because he knew he knew this yeah. uh, performer. Surely, yeah. And also, Don Shirley's life seems a little bit shrouded in some mystery, as many, I think, homosexual and black musicians must have been in that era because it's so dangerous. Oh, yeah. So, this is part of it. I mean, I'm sure I know that there's other films that explore this. And not that I really needed this movie to go this far down that road. But as like a, a bisexual man who does use apps to like hook up with people, I find it like 
fucking impossible to imagine how you would do that in the American oh South in 1960s as a black man, right? as a gay black man, and find someone to go and have a sexual relationship it's with. It's crazy. Like, it just seems so impossible to do. I don't know. I mean, if if white homosexuals were getting chemically castrated and thrown in jail, being black mm-hmm. would have made it a lot worse, I think. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, and the cruelty of that being overlaid with being culturally impactful and popular as a classical musician must have been just a psychological hell. The cinematography is by Sean Porter. His top four on IMDb are this movie, another movie with green in the title, Green Room from 2015. Is that the Tom Hanks? No, what's Green Room? No. That's Green Mile. Uh, you, it is with uh, Patrick Stewart, actually, as a raging Nazi. Uh, never seen them. It's actually pretty good. I actually like that movie, but it's uh, it's pretty dark. <laughs> also pretty bleak okay. and grim. Kumiko, the Treasure Hunter from 2014. Have you seen that movie? No. Is that the one with the Japanese lady that comes to America? Yes, I've never seen it. She thinks Fargo really... is a real story, so she's trying to find the money yeah, that they yeah, bury in I really Fargo. I wanted to watch that, but I haven't seen it. Okay. And then 20th Century Women from 2016. So I will say. All great looking movies. Mm-hmm. So he does know how to set a scene. Written by Nick Vallelonga, Brian Hayes Curry, and Peter Farrelly. Directed. Actually, am I wrong? Maybe it's Peter, not Bobby. I might have said the wrong thing at the beginning. You're right. Yeah. Okay, yes. Save your letters, everybody. I said the wrong thing at the beginning. It's Peter Farrelly who directed this yeah. movie, not Bobby just, Farrelly. Uh, just make a, a quick service announcement at the beginning. Yeah, like, yeah. This, at the beginning, it was Peter Farrelly. <laughs> <laughs> As the name might suggest, as we've already discussed, uh, this film was co-written by Tony Vallelonga's son. So the character Vigo plays, his son would go on to write this film. Nick Vallelonga has been part of the entertainment industry for a while, starting back in the 70s. He was an uncredited extra, like as a kid, an uncredited extra in The Godfather before going on to doing other uncredited extra work on things like Prissy's Honor and Goodfellas. This was in part because his dad, Tony Lip, uh, would go and have a small acting career. Biggest thing, like he would, he was in Goodfellas, but probably the most well-known for a recurring role he had on The Sopranos. It's going to be The Sopranos because uh, there's a theme sure. here of uh, grumpy Italian <laughs> well, men. What's that theme, Dave? What are you talking about? It's grumpy Italian men. Have you seen a picture of Tony? Are you saying that those, those movies, like The Godfather, Goodfathers, and The Sopranos all have a similar... Have you seen a photograph of Tony Lip? Yeah, I've seen him. Yeah, he's like the most goon-looking... <laughs> you two are so proud of yourselves. Because Nick remembers this time period, sort of, he was only three years old when this story takes place, he thought it would be a way to honor his dad and Dr. Shirley. Now, issues start right away from this premise because he only only took what his dad told him mm-hmm. and then used some archival materials in order to do a first draft Shocking. of the script. Yeah. What didn't happen, as you mentioned here earlier, is that they did not contact any of Dr. Shirley's family who was still alive or his fellow musicians that are shown in this yeah. movie who are also still alive. The, uh, one musician's not even Russian. <laughs> yeah, one, that was just what I just realized. Like one of them still alive and very much not a Russian. Yeah. So I don't know why he was made to be a Russian at all. But Anybody who 91% likes this movie know that none of it is real. I mean, that in and of itself, I don't super care about, but uh, regardless. Mm-hmm. To be abundantly fair, I will say this. Val Longa did consult with Dr. Shirley when he was still alive. Mm-hmm. That's the weird thing that this movie even points out, that they died within months of each other, yep. which is kind of bizarre. Now, I don't know exactly why Peter Farrelly is the only one, or sorry, is the one who is interested in taking this story 
on as like a director, but he did become involved because he bumped into Brian Curry, who he knew from doing bit parts in Fairly Brothers comedies. Valalonga also knew Curry from doing some extra work as well. So Curry is kind of this the the pivot point here. So Curry knew Valalonga and knew Peter Farrelly. He knows that Valalonga is working on the script, tells Peter Farrelly about it, and so they, they all kind of come together because Farrelly's like, I'm super interested. I want this to be my next movie. Once Farrelly comes aboard, basically says, I am making this as a movie, the script is done in two months. So it gets kind of like really fast-tracked. Now, there's a bit of a hitch in getting funding and a studio interested because there is another studio that technically had the rights to this story. The long and short of it is this. They are able to buy back the rights. And from what I can tell, the actual trip that they show in this film is longer. They say two months, but the actual trip was multiple months, almost a a full year, I think. Most of the events are true that they show in this movie. Uh, But there's even more stuff that did not make it into the script just because they wanted to streamline the story down to what was important, which is good. I, I don't need them showing me every single thing that happened on the road. Vigo was their number one choice. That is who they wanted to make this movie with. They are finally able to find the right manager to send it to. And then Vigo's first response is, no, I'm not going to be in this movie. He's like, there's no way I can play a heavy Italian guy. Yeah. <laughs> I can play a Middle Earth guy, but come on. A uh, heavy Italian a man? stretch, you know? Especially if you look at a picture of Tony Lip. Who basically is literally like you went to Central Casting. I was like, give me an Italian man. Uh, Italian (laughs) thug, not Italian man. I mean, you know, we've watched enough great uh, Italian film, but uh, stereotypical American Italian thug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the photograph. So they they are able to push him into eventually signing on. And then Mahershala signs on pretty quickly right after that. Mm Before filming began, Farrelly says that he had some misgivings. That he knows that they were spending too much time with Tony Lip's point of view. (laughs) within the script. Mm-hmm. So they hire Octavia Spencer as a producer to help them with having another point of view on the project. Here's the direct quote from Farrelly. He says, we were concerned about the perception. Why are you guys making this movie? And the answer is, I hate fucking racism. I hate it. I knew we had to bounce the story off of people. Starting with Mahershala during two weeks of rehearsal, we went through all the lines. He had a lot of thoughts. He kept it real. <sighs> It's just a lot of deep sighing. Pretty quick turnaround as filming began in January of 2018 and the film is ready by September where it premieres at the Toronto International Film Festival. Reactions from the very beginning are pretty mixed from critics but ultimately becomes something that is broadly uh, broadly enjoyed in both the critic community, just not very enthusiastically. But when it's released, it's the general audiences that love it, right? The, the, I will say, I was insulated a little bit from this. This is why I was a bit shocked at the box office returns. Because you can see from there, people were going to see this movie and going back probably multiple times. Because the internet melted down when this came out. I totally remember the discourse about this movie at the time it was released. That being said, we go on to be extremely successful. Nominated for five Academy Awards. It wins three of those. Oh. Best Original Screenplay. Best Supporting Actor for Herschel Alley, and the big one, it wins Best Picture. And everyone agrees that it was the best of the year. It's crazy. I like to always point this out. This has been happening a lot in the last few years. Basically, ever since the Academy uh, ha- has increased the ability to be to have 10 films nominated mm-hmm. for Best Picture, Best Picture is the only category where you do ranked choice. So you tell them, this is my number one, my number two, my number three. Uh, Every other category is just like whoever gets the most votes. Doesn't matter if it's the majority, it's just whoever gets the most votes. And so I think this is what happens in situations like this. Feels like it's obvious that uh, Green Book was not many people's first choice, 
but it was a lot of people second and third. <laughs> and so it just was able to have enough votes to push it over the line. Stupid. I mean, I'm kind of stuck. I shouldn't be on the populist surge behind it, particularly because it would also, ironically, have a controversy and pushback that it was the best picture. It's like, yes. you can't win, right? It's like the critics were tepid, the population loved it, and then they win this award and the population's like, well... I will say this, save for very few exceptions, uh, if you have a movie that you love, you almost don't want it to win Best Picture mm. because it always gets saddled with that expectation, right? It's like, well, this is not my favorite movie of the year. Why, why was this given Best Picture of the Year? It's always better to be like the, the runner-up is like, oh, this should have been the one that they gave really? Best Picture to because it just has a better shelf life, mm. I find. I don't know. But Awards are dumb in general. So. Awards are dumb yeah. is Dave Yun's, uh point of view so to finish this conversation off there was that scene right it's like tony lip understands uh knows the black musicians of the day like the popular black yes. musicians of the day uh, isn't afraid to you know eat fried chicken and he says directly like hey i'm better at being a black person than you are so i don't know what do you uh, what do you feel about that statement well you know in the context of that scene i wasn't offended by anything he was doing i just no. feel like because they didn't have enough gusto even to pursue it we don't get to open that window into dr shirley's inner workings i mean obviously we don't know much from his side it's not like he wrote his own biography about this particular part of his life but it would have just been nice to have a nod a little bit more weight into why stereotyping people's actions and their connection to their race or their culture is problematic. You can tell that there's thought behind it. Maybe this is Marsha Halla and the Octavius touch that it's not glossed over entirely. It just feels like there could have been a little bit more of a message in it. I'm going to be the biggest broken record on this and why I continue to come back to I think they're focusing on the wrong main character. Yeah. Cause it seems to me what the obvious thing here is, is that it is a person caught between two worlds in multiple different ways, yeah. between black culture and white culture, between gay culture and straight culture, between North and South. Like it's it, 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 him centered in that and having all those different like pinch points on him makes it an interesting revelation through this kind of like brutish guy who through his own inelegant ways of talking Talking, opens him up and like oh like maybe i have been closing myself off a bit too much now whether that was actually happening in real life i don't know but as a storytelling device i think that works you know i just thinking about it i think that it's not actually those scenes that are the problem because you know the more i think about it don shirley's character does have a lot of moments where they open it up and to emote so much of the loneliness and and struggle i think it's the ending that fucks it all up because i think that yeah if we didn't end on this, I mean, use the word saccharine, fucking cornball hallmark ending, and we just allowed Tony to have had a glimpse of his own bigotry without becoming this great white hope, right. we might have been able to just remember how much trauma that Don Shirley's dealing with throughout the film. But instead, because Tony gets this big win at the end and becomes this bastion of hope, uh, it really minimizes everything that Don Shirley's been through in this story. He becomes he becomes a prop at the very yeah, end, and that like, seems weird. He actually is he actually learned quite a, lo a lot about him actually. It's just 
you forget about it mm-hmm. because at the end, it's really about forgiving white people in the north because they right. freed the slaves, and it's total bullshit. Yeah, that, that's where it gets like a w- really weird that it's using that type of like absolvement at the yeah. end when there's so many of the this movie that I don't think is really about that. No. I think one of the best scenes is him. Dr. Shirley, Mahersha Ali talking about like, it's a series of little indignities, right? Yes. It's like, sure, you're right. And you hear about this even today. It's like one person being an idiot, I can deal with that. But it's every, every time that happens when it's a daily occurrence, yeah. it just adds up after a while. That's, you know, it's interesting. It's all in there, isn't it? It's just, I yeah. don't key into it. And it, could it be the impact of the ending alone? And maybe people who loved it don't put that much weight into resolutions of films and they actually remember everything in the middle. Uh, for me, I need to bookend everything into some treaties almost. Like I, I need to finish mm-hmm. even dumb comedies with an idea that there was a reason that I watched it. And if at the end of a film, the reason that they're throwing at you anyways is that everything's going to be okay as long as you can hug it out, then I'm upset because I don't believe that's the reality mm-hmm. of the world. Because I'm writing this slightly lower than my initial watch just because I think that ending like really feels tacked on. And, and maybe I'm just being a little bit too negative because I, I think there are some scenes here that are actually pretty strong, like in isolation. Yeah. If you just took that one scene and looked at it, I'm like, this is actually a pretty decent little drama that has been yes. put in front of us. But I think focusing on the Tony Lip character way too much at the beginning, having this really weird like resolution at the very end, and then like, a series of these like, episodic adventures that happen that don't feel like they've added up to anything by the end for me i just become deflated at the Mm -hmm. end it's like and i think maybe what we're both coming up against here is like you have the building blocks there actually is a great movie in there that's just like jumbled and not not as effective as it could be if you end this movie as he gets out of the car and actually refuses to come up and the, you know, Vigo does not declare that he's solved. He's sitting at the table, still kind of anguished by the ra- uh, racism in his family, and Don Shirley's just alone. I think that would have just been fine. Or Doctor Shirley, Doctor Shirley takes a drink from a cup, and you just watch him stare at the cup. No, well, I'm just saying, like, you know, we don't <laughs> need to solve it. It's like it's still an open-ended question in American culture. Mm-hmm. So you cut that film, even the last two minutes, and I think it actually retains the impact of everything you've watched previously and it's weird the more we talk about this film it wasn't missing i mean we could have expounded more on it and we could have definitely cut out 10 minutes Mm. of tony's uh, life story at the beginning sure you know they they did their best to kind of put it on there maybe this is why prominent uh you know even black culture celebrities were interested in this film because there are pieces in here there's pieces in here that's good. Like, I love that piece in the dive bar that yeah. they go to. I think that's yeah. super fun. Two very small things that I just want to call out. One, I love the fact that they really actually did have a gun the entire yeah. time. I think that's such a fun reveal. I'm like, oh, it's made to look so much like he doesn't. And then when you find it, it was, oh, he was actually... Yeah. <laughs> there's very close to that other situation could have gone way off the rails. Do you want to guess what my favorite s- small, quick moment in this movie is? No. <laughs> Um, it's a moment when Tony Lip is in his hotel room by himself and he folds an entire pizza and starts oh, yeah. to eat it. Goes Panzerati on it. <laughs> it yeah. just goes to town yeah. on an entire pizza. I'm like, dude, I've been there. I know. <laughs> I liked, uh, I had a good chuckle when his wife's like, bring your iron. And he's like, well, I'm just going to throw it between the mattresses of the hotels. I was like, that's a great idea. <laughs> and obviously it wasn't, yeah. but uh, I was on board with his, uh, grossness because, uh, 
Who brings an iron on a trip? Depends on if you want to get lucky. I was a little bit disappointed. Maybe I shouldn't have been that the final characterization of poor black people in that blues shack was that they were going to rob him because he flashed the cash. Mm. And I know that the white racists were portrayed as cruel and evil, but I just kind of wish there was uh, a different way to depict that. But, you know, it's not wrong. Poverty's poverty. It's just that I, I kind of want more dialogue about class struggle being the undercurrent of racism, that it's not a monolith, but I think we're struggling mm -hmm. with that in general. Weirdly, I actually think we'll probably be faced with the same sort of pushback just because of the impression this movie has left with so many people. I think this would actually work really well as a play mm. where you could actually have longer yes. talking scenes with him like in the car and like actually having those specifically yep. just to tie in some of the scenes together. Yep. Have a nice little musical performance and then kind of wrap it up. Maybe not as neatly as this movie does, but leave it a little bit more open after the conversations that they've had. Yeah, if you put in... I think it would actually work really well. Put in one or two asides even, just so that... Just understand that they're not as comfortable as they can appear sometimes in these scenes. I think it would work. Right. It's definitely... It's definitely got the promise that you can work these themes with dialogue more than visual representation too, you know. It would require a lot of a lot of different sets, Kyle. Yeah, you just need a car. <laughs> All right, so... <laughs> One act play. It's just Kyle in a car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have like two different color masks. <laughs> that would be amazing. And then it drives into the audience. We're done here. So the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here. Uh, so that brings us to Critics' Choice, the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time that this film was released. Brian Eggers over at Deep Focus Review really loved this movie. And so he wrote in part, Green Book is a crowd pleaser. And so watching it with a large audience is both essential for its maximum effect, but revealing depending on the audience. A movie theater packed with attuned viewers enhances our emotional reaction. Perhaps Ugh, because of the full house. Okay, keep going. Perhaps because the full house at the opening night screening of the Twin Cities Film Festival so thoroughly and vocally enjoyed the movie, I did too. Oh, when everyone's Jesus laughing Christ. around you, you can't help but laugh a little more than you might otherwise. It's one of the essential benefits of cinema as a communal experience, and it's how Green Book should be seen. But there's also a downside. When characters engage in humor that's not politically correct, and the predominantly white bourgeois audience feels perhaps too comfortable, their laughter can become somewhat troubling. As viewers chuckled at the use of outdated epithets, the response forced me to wonder whether they were laughing because they follow a so-called colorblind racial ideology, because such words make them feel awkward, or, worst of all, because they think such words are funny. It's a difficult distinction to identify in the midst of a packed movie house, but I can safely say there were more genuine laughs than vocal recoils or uncomfortable laughter, which was disconcerting. Nevertheless, when the oh movie isn't God. testing how Still comfortable going. its audience is with public racial discourse and racial humor, it presents a tender and enjoyable hunk of Oscar bait. Tears will be shed, laughs will be had, and crowds will love it. Perfect score. <laughs> here's a, here, here's my problem with the this review. I have this thing where when I watch stand-up comedy and I see that when people are in a crowd, they're dumber and they will laugh at any fucking thing. It makes me wonder whether I should go to a, watch comedy at a club or enjoy the intelligent writing behind it. Because the flip side is if you take a laugh track out of a sitcom, sometimes the jokes just don't land. And I, I wonder, you know, the way he writes this is such a populist. Well, uh, it's, it's like, a very like apologetic thing yeah. too. It's like, well, if you watch it with a crowd, then it's you'll better. love it. It's well, like, is that, is that the right way to approach a film? This is Maybe. why I also watch all sitcoms on mute. 
to well, fully understand if the comedy works. It's like uh, <laughs> Marvel films, you know? Do I need to be in a throng of nerds screaming at a screen every time a fucking Easter egg shows up? Or should I be able to watch it on Disney Plus and still appreciate filmmaking? I need a nerd's spittle to hit me in the eye. Okay, Dave? It's a tough one, right? Like, uh, I don't know, man. All right. So, a little bit of a different opinion over on Sight and Sound, where Nick Pinkerton writes this. Green Book has been tagged as a departure for Farrelly, who only six years ago was being raked over the coals as the rascal responsible for writing and directing a segment in the critically maligned comedy anthology Movie 43, in which Kate Winslet goes on a date with eligible bachelor Hugh Jackman, only to discover that he has a scrotum-shaped goiter dangling from his neck. What? And indeed it is a departure, at least in terms of the air of sanctimonious self-importance surrounding it. It is hard to imagine fairly saying of even a near masterwork, like his Kingpin in 1996, that it would be a movie that can change people's hearts and minds incrementally, as he told a Vanity Fair reporter of Green Book. In fact, the things that Green Book handles well are the things that Farrelly always handles well in his films with his brother or in the last serious-minded film he alone had a hand in, Michael Carrenti's Outside Providence from 1999, adapted from Farrelly's novel of the same name. This is to say, it excels at lowbrow comedy made with a down-to-earth humanity and a feel for the American working class, or more specifically, for the Northeastern white ethnic working class as familiar to the Rhode Island raised director. There is much to criticize in Green Book, but I can find nothing to reproach in the scene where Val Longa, alone in his hotel room, folds an entire pizza in half and prepares to take a bite. Did not like this movie very much, he did not. Yeah, both touch on things that we're sensitive about. It's fascinating how yeah. professional writers can piece together language a lot better than two idiots on a podcast. You need an hour and a half to go through these things, Dave. Now, we should answer the question, does this hold up? And is it still culturally relevant? I don't think so. I mean, I... I honestly think it stopped being culturally relevant about a year, maybe a year and a half after it was released. Yeah. I think that's how fast, like, culture around it changed, where this feels almost too, like, twee yeah. <laughs> with, its, with its outlook. Yeah. I don't know. The, the language, I mean, it's telling that on a watching in 2023, the four other films by black creators about this issue... Uh, still seem more relevant than this take. And also is so um, so indicative of, of the Academy where it's it's the one that's written and directed by the white people yeah. that's focusing on this type of uh, in- information that gets You want to rewarded. quickly talk about this sort of colonial or white person lens. It, it's just interesting. We saw that with Creed 2, you know, this white savior routine. And yeah, I, I think that I was talking, I interviewed a indigenous photographer and he was talking about how there's a problem, you know, with the, we call it the white lens in photography, where all of the documentary photography that we've grown to be accustomed to were European uh, photographers. You know, you had to be a privileged class mm-hmm. to even own a camera. And so they want stories told by, in this case, indigenous photographers to go into reservations or addiction struggles or all of the difficult trauma that they deal with. But the other problem is when they create material, nobody wants to look at it, right? And so we're at a cusp, we're at a turning point where do we need more black filmmakers, scriptwriters to tell these stories? Absolutely. Will the general audience watch those films? Probably not. So, well, I don't know. I guess and no. I think I think this is where we have to be conscious of too. I think it does have a lot to do with how it's pitched both by the creators and by their marketing teams. Because as soon, and this happens has happened even in the last couple of years, and I always hate it when I see it because like they're doing themselves no favors. If you go to someone and say, 
you actually have to go and see this movie because it's important. It's made by this person. If you don't go and see it, you're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Guess what people don't want to do? Go and see your stuff. Mm-hmm. You just have to kind of allow like the story has to be good enough on its own for to draw people there. While I also still agree, yes, we need more voices to be telling their own stories. Yeah. But as soon as you start to wrap it up and it's like, it's important. Or it's, like you, it's your duty that you have to go and see this. People check out. Yeah. They don't want to have it feel like homework. Or there's also this other complex issue where... You know, do people get funding for their status as opposed to the strength of the material itself? And, mm, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that works that both ways, too. right? It's worked with the patriarchy for a long time. There's a lot of films that have got a lot of budget that should not have even been made in the first place. But I think, you know, we're in a difficult time where this transition, where we are inviting more voices, um, needs some, a couple of sort of cornerstone properties. And uh, we saw that with Black Panther, unfortunately, with Wakanda Forever through circumstances outside of their control. Uh, we got a little bit of a dip. Um, we saw this rhetoric with the Amber Heard trial. People wanted to exonerate Johnny Depp, but it did put a dent into the Me Too movement because it will be used against, uh, you know, actual accusers who have proof, you know, and I think it's just weird, you know, we live in a very weird time where this transition period is going to be very messy. And uh, this film yes. does no favor, now, even though it does have a strong story to tell and the pieces are I know, successful. I think it's so weird, I think that's right? the thing is like, this could be a film that gets remade and maybe even better in like, I don't know, 20 years. Mm-hmm. But we'll or see. retold, maybe. Um, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release videos on our YouTube channel. And if you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the we've given you can go to our letterboxd page that's letterboxd.com slash kdvstm and if you want to help support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and that may become even more necessary very very soon and so we don't usher in the next apocalypse you can go to our patreon page there is a link in the show notes of this episode you can support for as low as a dollar per month and something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts so let's get to the rating of this movie dave out of five what are you going to give green book I decided to go with a three. I feel like Mm. I don't hate this movie the way we hated Million Dollar Duck or uh, Death in Venice or something like that. I think the performances are very strong. I just just hate how it feels so soft-edged and and kind of the ending has just Mm. left a bit of a a taste in my mouth, which is too bad. I'm going to drop my my rating ever so slightly. I'm going to give it a 2.5. Wow is what I'm going to give it a 2.5. I think after a second watch, it's like, yeah, like the stuff that's good is good, but the stuff that's bad actually is more bad than I remember it being. So that's where I'm going to be. Dave, no, it's hilarious. This is probably the first time ever in our show that your average rating is higher than mine. No, that's not true. (laughs) That's absolutely not true. No, I mean like overall after these, what, however many films you've watched. Oh, for the year. Oh, interesting. Yeah, for the Mm. the year, your your average rating is higher than mine currently. Well, it's just because you have such a fucking hard on for hating the favorite. (laughs) <laughs> Don't be that's favorite. what skewed it I love that's honestly the only thing that skewed it this year oh, i just peaked yelling into the mic that's the only thing that skewed it this year we've been mm. pretty much we've been pretty much on course all year uh but that one okay. really stuck in your craw my craw was stuck <laughs> okay well that's going to do average to 2.75 we'll round that down to a 2.5 dave that does tie with creed 2 so would you put this above or below creed 2 i would put it below i just I, yeah. I think Creed 2, for all its fault, was still had fun moments. Just watching Michael B. Jordan like beat people up is fun. 
I just wish he looked happier in it. Well, that does mean that Green Book is going to enter into our list at the new number six position, which is the in last place. I guarantee you it will not be last place by no. the end of the season. <laughs> it just should not have won best picture of the year. Okay, let's see what our machine does here for us. This time I'm going to push this button. Okay, it says that for sure next week we're going to talk about Roma. Okay, so for we'll sure see. next week we're going to talk about Roma. All right. This was also nominated, right? Roma? Yeah, this is the movie that a lot of people thought should have won. Well, best Spider-Verse should have won, but that's did, a whole other problem. Did win Best Director, so mm. we'll see. All right. Dave, we've arrived at our location. I'm just going to pull into our parking space here. Where are we? Oh, this a uh, fast food joint. Bur mm. Burger Baron? What is that? What is a Burger Baron? <laughs> I can't eat this. Sure we, sure we can. I'll show you how to eat it properly, Dave. <laughs> it's so wet. I need to know where all these people are masturbating. <laughs>